Well, hey, it's good to be together, isn't it not? To be in God's house again. Uh, say a special welcome to those of you joining us at our other campuses as well. And we are going to anchor in our uh, discussion. Well, really, our discussion is rather of an anchor text. Uh, it's a very important one. I want to start by reading it, so I invite you to have your Bibles uh, to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're picking up where we left off last week and want to read four verses. And really, we're going to focus in on just two of those. A very interesting passage, an important passage. Uh, an anchor passage for us before we get really into the meat and potatoes of this book of First Peter. So we are in First Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 10, and then we're going to read through verse 13. So it reads like this, concerning this salvation. So you'll remember last weekend we talked about the hope that we have, the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ, a guaranteed inheritance, and a secure salvation. That was last weekend. So now he says, concerning this salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven." Things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. So, Father, I would pray that in this text, a really interesting text, I pray that you would speak to us. Uh, I just echo uh, the words of the songs that we have sung, the words of prayers that have gone before this, that you by your spirit would teach us from this text, that we would see particularly the incredible privilege that we have to live in the generation that we live in. As we look back on the foundation that the apostles and prophets laid for us, and as we try to get inside their mindset literally thousands of years ago and what they understood and what they knew and how they searched so diligently, May, Lord, you anchor that in our minds that we are so privileged to live in the generation that we do as we look back on all of these fulfilled prophecies. So we commit this hour to you and uh, pray in Jesus' name that you would speak to us by your spirit. Amen. Well, hey, uh, I am sure most of you have uh, ridden across on the ferry to the island. Uh, a number of years ago, I had a regular trip. About once a month, I was making my way across to the island as part of a uh, church planning advisory team that met with a, a, a young church planner who was trying to get a church established on the island. And it was a bit of a routine monthly, and I always enjoyed it. It was a little bit of break in the schedule because you weren't driving, and you could park the car and then go up and enjoy the ride. And so it was often a time to, to read a book, uh, to catch up on emails, and obviously to look out the windows at the stunning beauty of the inner passage, and those of you who've made that trip know just the ocean waters and the coastal mountains and how amazingly beautiful it is, and then on the odd occasion when you'd see a, a whale on the side of the boat, such a cool time, and if it was sunny, on the rare times it was sunny, to go up on the upper decks and to enjoy the sunshine. Uh, so it was always a privilege, but I remember one ride in particular that I was so glad to get back to solid ground. So we were on the island, and uh, the guys that we're meeting with there were saying to us, I don't think you're going to get on the boat tonight. And we're like, yeah, what are you talking about? And they're like, the winds are starting to blow. The rain's coming pretty hard. You'll be lucky if they don't cancel the sailings. And so we made our way down to the ferry, and sure enough, they were still sailing. The rain was coming like sideways, and we got on the boat. And about halfway back to the mainland, I was wondering, should I have gotten on this boat? 
Now, I've never been out on the open seas, and so those of you who have may think that this is funny, but that was the worst boat ride of my life as the boat was going left and right and up and down, and they just encouraged us to stay in our seat. And literally halfway back, I was not sure we were going to make it. I don't know how often BC ferries sink, <laughs> but I thought if it's going to sink, this is going to be the night that it's going to sink. And when we got back, I was so glad to get my feet back on solid ground. And it was interesting that that was the last sailing of the night. They did cancel all the boats for about a day after that. It was one of those big storms came in. So the book we're reading is really about wind warnings. Uh, Peter is giving us some storm warnings. There's going to be some heavy waters coming up against us in the days and the years ahead. These first readers in the first century, and we look at the times that we live in and go, what are the similarities to their times in that first century? And Peter says in many ways, the thesis, Tom Schreiner says, is this. The purpose of the letter is to encourage believers to stand fast while they endure suffering and distress in the present evil age. We looked at that last week and put it up there again for you to see it. This is really the thesis statement of the book. And, and probably the majority of the book, we're going to be talking about trials and suffering and distress that come inevitably to the children of God. And not just the trials that come our way because of health issues and financial issues and relational issues, but specifically challenges because we carry the name of Jesus. I like how Stephen Poss puts it. He encourages us that it is the hope of Jesus that empowers us to stand strong is in a minority status with great joy. So he is a pastor in Amsterdam, and he says this, we can fully understand ourselves as being strangers in a post-Christian culture and yet not be depressed about it. And yet not be depressed. I, I like how he puts it. That we don't need to be standing on the sidelines as though we were somehow victims of some dark conspiracy coming up against us, but rather we look at the opportunities God gives us as missional agents sent out into this world with a very hopeful message. And so 1 Peter 2, a chapter, we'll come to it a little bit later in the study. But keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, those of you who know your Bibles will know that that is almost an exact quote of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. It is an echo to Jesus' words when he said, let your light shine in the world around you so literally people will see your good lives, they'll see your good deeds, and they therefore then will glorify God because of the life that you're living among them. And I think that we need this understanding of 1 Peter in the day that we are living in today. Because of... The polarization that we are seeing in our culture on so many levels. The political wars and the competing ideologies. And because unfortunately, too many Christians have been swept along in this cultural mess that we're in right now. And instead of standing apart from the world in our attitudes and actions being different than the attitudes and actions of the world around us, we have sometimes adopted the very same level of vitriolic tone towards our culture. We have to confess it. We have to own it. We need to recapture the beauty, the beauty of a testimony of godly lives that are lived out before a watching world. It's why I like the artwork that Dakota Thiessen created this slide for us. And as we talked about this book, we were looking at it and saying, you know, you can come at First Peter from two different angles. And so you could put up a very dark background like storm clouds and warnings and hurricane force winds and make this very dark and bleak. Or you can look at it the other side that we have a living hope. And I love the imagery that the sun is going to rise tomorrow morning. 
It's going to come up over Mount Baker again. All things being equal, today may suck, but tomorrow the sun is going to rise again, Lord willing. And God is for us, he is with us, and despite the darkness, we have a strong and living hope. And the only way, however, that we're going to live those kind of lives is if we are deeply rooted in the truth of who God is and then who we are in response. So, this sure hope that Peter presses into is the opening words, and we are spending our third week now in the introduction. We're not even really into the content of the book yet, but he starts it by saying, praise God that you've been born again. In other words, praise God for your salvation. And then as we read, he starts in verse 10, and hey, speaking of the subject of salvation, concerning this salvation, let's spend some time here. Let me remind you of how privileged we are to live in the time and place that we live in and to know and understand what we know. So what Peter is simply saying in this text is our salvation is a big deal. And it really should be a big deal, that we should never ever take it for granted, but that we should ponder it and reflect on it and think on it because those who've gone before us have spent time searching deeply. And so the challenge of verse 13, when he, he wraps it up with this, therefore, because of everything that we've read so far, therefore, prepare your minds for action, be sober-minded, and set your hope fully on this grace. Because salvation from start to finish is the topic of this book. From beginning to end, from Genesis through Revelation, 66 books, 1,189 chapters, they all have one central theme that God is rescuing, that God is restoring, that God is calling us back to himself. It is the center of our faith. And it's this salvation message, he says, that the prophets long to understand. So this is really interesting. Verse 10 and 11, considering this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be, was to be yours inquired carefully and inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. In other words, put it in our language, the prophets studied prophecy. That's what Peter's saying. The prophets themselves studied prophecy. What an interesting phrase. Because we look at it and we're like, but wait a minute, they're the ones who wrote it. Did they not understand what they were writing? And so we're going to talk a lot tonight about prophecy. And someone might be asking the question, well, who are these prophets and what exactly is a prophet? And actually, the word is still quite well known, even in our culture at large. Uh, look it up on dictionary.com. I don't know which dictionaries you use, but dictionary.com gives six definitions for the word prophet. Interestingly, five of them are religious in nature. So even a secular dictionary knows that a prophet has something to do with religion. And then one final, a predictor of the future. So a prophet, according to dictionary.com, is this. A person who speaks for God. Five different definitions that all say that. And then sixthly, a person who predicts what is to come. Someone who speaks for God and someone who predicts the future. This is what a prophet is. And the Bible also uses the word prophet in those two senses. That a prophet is a person who tells God's word forth, who speaks God's word into our lives, and secondly, speaks the future into our lives. And the Bible uses the word prophet in two different ways. There's small p prophecy, a small p prophet. And in this sense of the word prophecy, to speak on or behalf of God, every single follower of Jesus Christ in this sense is a small p prophet. Because every single follower of Jesus Christ has the opportunity to speak for God. 
to take his word and to apply it and to bring it to bear on the issues of life and to give encouragement and warning and admonition, taking this book and speaking it into your friend's life, your family's life, into your cultural's life. So in the small p sense of prophecy, every single one of us has the opportunity to participate in this ministry. But secondly, there is also a capital P prophet a special class of people designated and called in the scriptures prophets. And these are the individuals who spoke the very words of God. So a small p prophet would go, the word of God says, the Bible says, that's what a small p prophet says. A capital P prophet would say, thus saith the Lord and giving new revelation. They spoke the words of God. And so there they go. So from Moses in the beginning, the book of Genesis, through till Uh, One more. John on the Isle of Patmos, the book of Revelation. These are the prophets who spoke to us the word of God. 2 Peter 1 says this. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. For men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what Peter is referring to here is what we call divine inspiration. Divine inspiration, literally, that God by his spirit through the pen of a human author speaks out his very words, the words of God. Uh, Second Timothy, same thought. All scripture is breathed out by God. It is literally God breathed through the voice or through the pen of that earthly vessel. And it is profitable then for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. It's an incredibly important topic in every generation that we believe this book is divinely inspired. That these are indeed the words of God, and it has been the core debate in every change in teaching or doctrine or theology is when people begin to say, ah, there's parts of it that aren't given to us by God. There were parts that were man's interpretation. And the question is, will we trust this book as our authoritative source for life? And I'll remind you, you know this already, but Satan's first words that are recorded, the very first words out of the enemy's mouth were to challenge God's word. You go back to Genesis, the very first thing we hear him say was, did God really say to call into question God's revelation to Adam and Eve, to to question the word of God? And the same has been true in every generation. And sadly, it's true in our generation as well. There's nothing new under the sun. There are people today who are deconstructing the word of God and saying, no, it's not all inspired. It might be inspirational, but it is not inspired. So prophets speak God's word. They tell forth the word. And in that sense, the entire Bible is prophetic. But there is a second sense of the prophetic that is unique. And I don't know if you knew this, but it is unique to the Christian faith. It is unique to the Jewish scriptures and the Christian scriptures, which are our Bible. No other holy book in the world contains prophecies of future events. Did you know that? It's unique to the Christian faith that there are prophets who hundreds of years earlier prophesied specific events and they have come to be true. Predicting of the future. Literally hundreds of predictions of future events that are given through the scriptures. Let me, let me just point out two of them, how clearly and specifically these are fulfilled. So God calls a man named Abraham back in Genesis 15, and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation, and your descendants are going to inherit this chunk of real estate here in the Middle East. But then he tells him, but not yet. 
You're going to have to wait. Literally, you're going to wait 400 years for the fulfillment of this prophecy. And specifically, your children are going to live as slaves. They're going to be oppressed by another nation, and then I will bring them back. So Genesis 15, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward, they will come out. Now, many of you know this story. You know that Abraham had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob, who had 12 sons. So you're down four generations already. And those 12 sons, one of the youngest, was a guy named Joseph, and he was dad's favorite. And because he was the spoiled, one of the younger guys, the other brothers hated him, and they sold their brother at 17 years old as a slave and sent him to Egypt. And 25 years later, when there is famine in Canaanland, they go down to Egypt to buy grain, and lo and behold, their brother that they sold as a slave is now a ruler in Egypt, and Joseph becomes a savior, quote-unquote, of his family. He is a type of Christ. He, he redeems, he saves his family, and they're restored because Joseph was there. But as you read on, they all die, and it says, and another king comes, and he didn't know Joseph, and he didn't know Joseph's purpose, he didn't know his brothers, and he enslaves the Hebrew people, and 400 years after that promise given to Abraham, God sends another man named Moses to lead them out. Specific prophecy. One more example, 150 years before the Babylonian captivity. Isaiah is telling the people what is going to happen to them. They're going to go to Babylon. They're going to be in prison there. They're going to be enslaved there. But he says this in Isaiah 44, but Cyrus, my shepherd, a king is going to come named Cyrus, and he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purposes, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now, again, many of you know this story. And if you read the book of Ezra, which is about the rebuilding of the temple, you will know that Ezra opens with these lines that the Lord stirred the heart of a man named Cyrus. And you're like 150 years in advance. I mean, who in this room would dare to uh, think who's going to be king 150 years from now? But God told Isaiah, a king named Cyrus is going to send you back to rebuild this temple. Okay. Those might be amazing, but even more amazing, far more amazing, are the hundreds of prophecies that point forward specifically to Jesus Christ. There are over 300 of them. In fact, one commentator I was reading detailed out 351 individual specific prophecies about Jesus. And some of them are incredibly specific and detailed. So let me just run through a long list for you. Just listen up. We are told that this Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49. We're told in Isaiah 7 that he will be born of a virgin. We're told in Micah 5 that he will be born in a little town named Bethlehem. We're told in Hosea 11 that he will sojourn in Egypt. We're told in Isaiah 40 that a forerunner will go ahead of him to prepare the way, John the Baptist. We're told in Psalm 78 that he will teach in parables. And we're told in Isaiah 6 that those parables will fall on deaf ears. People won't listen. We're told in Isaiah 9 that his ministry will start in a place called Galilee. We're told in Isaiah 35 that he will work miracles, specifically that he will heal the blind, the lame, and the mute. We're told in Zechariah 9, this one's fascinating, that he will ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. We're told in Isaiah 53 that he would be despised and rejected. 
We're told in Zechariah 11 that he will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. We're told in Psalm 22 that his hands and his feet will be pierced. We're told in Exodus 12 that none of his bones will be broken. And we're told in Psalm 69 that he will be given vinegar for his thirst. And then finally, Psalm 16, that he will conquer death. And Psalm 68, that he will ascend to heaven. That's just 17. 17 of over 300 specific prophecies. And you're like, hundreds of years before Jesus lived, these prophecies are given about his life. So uh, a guy who's, he's been dead about 30 years now, Peter Stoner, who was a professor of math and astronomy, a PhD at Pasadena College and later Westmount uh, College, was fascinated by Bible prophecy and fascinated as a mathematician about the probabilities and the odds. And he dug into these prophecies and he put math to play and he goes, what are the odds? What are the possibilities that this many prophecies could be fulfilled in just one individual? And so he did the math on it. And he said, if you take just eight, only eight of the Old Testament prophecies and you assume that hundreds of years later they will be fulfilled in just one individual person, what are the odds? The odds are 10 to the 17th power. In other words, 10 by 10 by 10 by 10 by 10, 17 times. And you're like, that's a massive number. It is. We don't even have a name for that number. 17 zeros behind a one. So he tried to illustrate it and he figured it out. He's like, it's like if you took a silver dollar and you put a special mark on that silver dollar, and then you threw it onto a pile of other silver dollars. And this pile of silver dollars is enough to cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. And then you blindfold a person and send them in, and they can travel as far and wide as they want in the state of Texas, but they can only pick out one silver dollar, and the chance that they will pick out that one silver dollar that you have that mark on, that's 10 to the 17th power. And only eight of those prophecies, and you say there are over 300. What Peter was saying to his first century readers is this. Do not take for granted the privilege you have to live when you live. Because you, as New Testament believers, have the amazing gift of being able to see the vast amount of Old Testament prophecy that have been clearly and meticulously fulfilled in Jesus. You actually know more than the prophets themselves knew. Is that not amazing? It is. Say it is. Yes. Agree with me. I command you to say yes. <laughs> they wrote down words that they didn't fully understand. Verse 11 tells us that. They inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. They knew that the Spirit was indicating something, but what person and how long would it be till this happened? So in other words, the prophets studied prophecy. And there are so many examples we could do, but I'm just going to grab one for sake of time. And we're going to do a deep dive just for a moment into the second half of the book of Daniel. So Daniel is given a series of visions about the future, and quite frankly, if you're reading the book of Daniel, they freak him out. He doesn't know what to do with these visions. In fact, there are times where he says, I feel sick. He literally had to go to bed on occasion for several weeks because he was so worked up with these visions that he had seen. And so the visions start in chapter 7. And he starts by seeing four great beasts who arise and one successively after the other consumes the one before it until the fourth great beast has destroyed all the ones that have gone before it. 
And then he goes on to see this in chapter 7, 13. And I saw the night visions and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Now I got to stop right there because with your New Testament ears, you're already going ding, 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 ding. I know who that is. I know who that is. He didn't know who it was. He saw one like the son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And then Daniel says this, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions in my head alarmed me, And I approached one of them who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. And so he told me and he made known to me the interpretation of these things. So this individual in his vision says to him, Daniel, I'll tell you what it is. These four beasts, they're four kingdoms that are going to rise. After Babylon is defeated, after Persia and Media are defeated, there's going to be four other earthly kingdoms and they're going to rise. But at the end, the saints of God are going to inherit an eternal kingdom led by one called the Son of Man. But Daniel's dreams and visions go on. And with each successive vision, Daniel seeks to know and to understand. Daniel 8, verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. In Daniel 9, we basically find Daniel reading scripture. Daniel is studying prophecy. Specifically, he is reading Jeremiah's words. And he's trying to put together what Jeremiah, a generation before him, had to say about his day. And he's praying as he's reading the scriptures. And he's like, Lord, I really want to understand this. I really want to know what Jeremiah was on about. Daniel, the prophet, was a study of prophecy. Is this a student of prophecy? Is that not interesting to you? It's interesting to me. Just join me in it. The end of the book... Daniel goes to God again in chapter 12. And he basically says, okay, God, I've written down everything that you've asked me to write down. Could you please explain it to me? Here's what I've got, Lord. I've got this so much that kings and kingdoms are going to come and go over the history of the world. And ultimately, there's going to be one great and final king who looks like he is going to set himself up in absolute opposition to you, God. That's what I'm getting so far. Is this correct? And the answer that Daniel gets is this. There shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered Every one of whose name is found written in the book and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And you read that and you're like, that looks an awful lot like other prophetic words about the final days of life as we know it on planet earth. And specifically in that text, you see the resurrection of the dead under judgment. You see the resurrection of the righteous under eternal life and the resurrection of the wicked under eternal condemnation. The resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. And what comes next must have been uber frustrating to Daniel. It would have been frustrating to me. Verse four, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal this book. Just put it aside for now. Until the time of the end and many will run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. There will be a thing called the internet. Oh, wait, that's not there. (laughs) Daniel still has questions. 
How long is it going to be, Lord? How long until we see these things fulfilled? Verse 8 and 9, I heard, but I didn't understand. And then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel. Don't worry about it, Daniel. The words are shut up and sealed until the end of time. And God's people in every generation have asked these kind of questions. How long, O oh Lord? How long? What are going to be the signs of the end of the age? What is it that we are to look for? How will we know? And over in 2 Peter chapter 3, we hear Peter repeating this cry of the people of his day. How long, O oh Lord? And then the answer comes, and this is what it says in Peter 3. But don't overlook one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. How long, O oh Lord? He's not slow. But he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Let me ask you that question. Aren't you glad that the Lord is patient? Aren't you glad he waited for us? And see, there's still people, there's still more of the elect who are yet to come in who have not yet heard the gospel of Jesus. And there are some very specific promises in the scripture that tell us that every ethnic group, the gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth, specifically to every ethnic group, and then the end will come. We've got work to do. That he did not end world history before he gave everyone a chance to hear and respond. And so 1 Peter 1 verse 10 concerning this salvation. So last week we looked at this living hope. You have been born again to a living hope, a guaranteed inheritance, a secure salvation. And concerning this salvation, the prophets themselves searched and studied, and we are so privileged, you and I are so privileged to live in the day that we live in because we actually see and hear and understand more than even the authors of Scripture knew and understood. They wanted to know so much more who specifically is it that we're writing about, Lord? And when will these things take place? Uh, one guy used the illustration. It's like a bunch of archers. So let's put a bunch of archers out on the front parking lot, and they're going to shoot over the building to a target behind the building that they cannot see. And 300 some odd arrows. And they're going to shoot them over the building at a target, and then you walk around the building and you look, and lo and behold, the bullseye is Jesus. And every single one of those 300 have hit the bullseye. You see, that's the day that we live in because we can look back and we can go, look, look at how many specific prophecies have been fulfilled one after the other in the person of Jesus Christ. And yes, there are some that are yet to be fulfilled. And in those, like the prophets before us, we long to know and understand. I'll tell you, in the last couple of years, I've had a lot of conversations with people going, how long do you think the Lord's going to wait? How much longer can it go on? The days and age that we're living in, how long will the Lord tarry? It's the same question the disciples ask. In Matthew 24, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and saying, tell us, Jesus, tell us. When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And if, if you've read that chunk, you will know that Jesus goes on for two full chapters 25, 24 and 25, two full chapters, he explains to them what the final days of earth's history is going to look like and what we are to look for and what are the signs of the times and, and how are we supposed to live in light of those signs. 
But as we approach prophecy, we have this great advantage because we have the massive amount of biblical prophecy that has already been fulfilled. Uh, as, as 2 Corinthians say, all of God's promises are yes in Jesus. All God's promises find their yes in him. Or as 2 Peter 1.19, just one chapter over, says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. In other words, you can look back on prophecies that you see fulfilled, and those prophecies shine a light in this dark place that we live in. So what was it that they predicted? Well, specifically, he says here in verse 11, they inquired as to what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And we have seen his sufferings. We have seen his death and his burial and his resurrection lived out meticulously. And we have seen, in part, the fulfillment of his glory. That he is seated at the right hand of the Father, but there is a whole raft of prophecies that we are still eagerly waiting upon. The glories of Christ that are yet to come. And it's in those that we place our hope and our interest and our study and our intrigue. Oh God, how long is it going to be till the end? And I'd, I would love to jump into the, a long rabbit trail and go down that path for a moment, but we don't have time. And actually to stay true to the text, that's not where Peter goes either. At least not in this moment. Instead, he says simply in verse 12, this is what was revealed to the prophets. It's the gospel that was preached to you by the apostles. And this very interesting phrase, it's the gospel that the angels long to look into. That even the angels don't know the end. They don't know what these prophecies mean. They are longing to see salvation filled out. And so Peter opens this book, this introduction, to give us warnings that the high winds are in the forecast, but before we get those wind warnings, he wants to anchor us back to our living hope, and it's what I'm trying to anchor you into, our living hope. The salvation that the prophets spoke of, that the New Testament preachers preached about, and the Holy Spirit made make sense in our hearts and minds, and to get this that even the angels want to look into. And friends, this is where we need to direct our time and our prayer and our interest and attention, because then he says in verse 13, so prepare your minds for action, because the wind warnings are up and the waves may crash in on your boat, but set your mind fully on the grace of God towards you. This salvation that was taught to you and written the powerful word of God is your sure anchor regardless of what comes your way. You need to know this, friends, what you have in your hands. This book holds the key to life. This book holds the answers to the questions that trouble us. This book tells us the story of salvation and the privilege that we have to live when we do that the men who wrote these pages only saw in part, but because of their testimony and because of the passage of time, we can see the word of God is indeed living and active, that it is true, it is verifiable, that everything that we believe to be true in the New Testament was embedded in the Old Testament. And everything we need to understand about the Old Testament is explained in the New Testament. It's an amazing book. 
written by 40 authors, 40 different authors on three different continents in three different languages spread out over 1,500 years and yet absolute unity of its message and purpose. And you know why? Because it only had one author, the Holy Spirit. There is only one author. And so Peter, before he addresses some of the specific hassles that these people are going to face and the hassles that we're going to face. He first and foremost anchors them. Set your hope fully on this grace. Remember, friend, your great salvation because it is the central message of this book. It is the central message of our lives that broken lives, rebellious lives laid down in exchange for wholeness and reconciliation that through God, through Jesus Christ, he came after us. Even when we weren't looking for him, he came looking for us. So let me remind you of your salvation, friend. And may we never, ever, ever, ever grow tired of this topic. May we never grow tired of this topic concerning this salvation. It's the central issue of our lives. And if our faith is going to survive the gale force winds that come up against us, we need an anchor. And this is indeed our anchor. Let me pray for you. So Lord, I pray for these men and women, and I pray for all those who are listening today, wherever they're listening from, Father. You know the times that we live in. So we're going to look at a book written in the first century, and we're going to look at some specifics of what these people faced 2,000 years ago. And then we're also going to look at our day and look at the similarities of some of the hassles that are up against us as believers. But Father, the hope of this book is that it doesn't matter what the world throws our way. It doesn't matter what gale force winds come up against us. It doesn't matter when the waves start to crash against our boat because we have an anchor that holds us solid. And so, Lord, I pray for the men and women of our congregation. I pray that you would anchor us deeply, that you would root us deeply in a sure grace and hope and trust that you have us, Lord. And may we look back and may we look at all those fulfilled prophecies, the meticulous details, the way that you have fulfilled so many, and then may we trust that those are yet to be fulfilled will one day be just as meticulously fulfilled And may we hope and trust that all of your promises, every single one of them will be yes and amen in Jesus. And those that aren't yet fulfilled, that we can take it to the bank, they will be fulfilled. And Lord, give us eyes to see them. And Lord, we're asking, can we see some in our day? And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.